I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth Admission. One out of every two people testing positive for the coronavirus in San Francisco is Latino, but Latinos make up just 15% of the city's population. That's because they're far more likely to be essential workers and live in crowded homes. John Jacobo, the head of the city's Latino task force, is trying to address these disparities, but says City Hall isn't doing as much as it could to help. John Jacobo, welcome to the podcast. Heather, thank you for having me. You just got back from testing people for the coronavirus at the 16th Street BART station, you were telling me, before I hit record. So how did that go? <laughs> it went It went good. You know, this is um, very fortunate to be in our third uh, project with, uh, with UCSF uh, and the Latino Task Force, which I'm sure we'll touch on here briefly. But this is our third project. Um, we've done the first neighborhood testing that we know of in the country uh, back in April here. Uh, we then followed that up with a 24th Street uh, Transit Hub testing. And because we want to make sure that we show the same love to the lower mission, we, we popped the station up there on 16th uh, that we've been having up since Monday. And it went well. Great. Well, um, you know better than anybody that um, Latinx people are making up about half of those that test positive for COVID-19 in San Francisco, but um, only comprise about 15% of the population. Um, And those numbers have not gotten any better since the start of this pandemic. Um, Why do you think that disparity exists and what's causing the discrepancy? The the painful reality is that this the city and county of San Francisco, in many ways, is not alone. Um, if you look at different counties, the, the 58 counties in California, you're going to find a lot of these disparities that exist when you look particularly at the Latino community. And, you know, what I, through, through my work and just uh, both anecdotal examples of growing up here in the Mission District, uh, but also through some work I've done statewide in different Latino communities, can tell you that a lot of this is kind of unfortunately baked into the inequities that exist um, in our country, in California, and in San Francisco. Uh, A place like the Mission District is a prime example of of disparities, right, where you have uh, individuals who are making under $55,000 a year, um, but living next door to somebody who's making $150,000 a year, or somebody that just purchased a home for $1.4 million. Um, and, and so those are very stark differences and very real differences. And so what that really leads to is individuals having to do two things. The first is having to work uh, because you can't eat and you can't live here if you don't. In many cases, work two jobs, sometimes three. And you have to piece together rent, which usually tends to mean that you're either living with lots of family members or other families. And the two things that we have found is those two things just boil down to being an essential worker and living in congregated Mm -hmm. living situations. Right. And then the virus spreads much faster than it would if you're working from home with just your own family. Yeah. Right. Like if, you know, when you go home, I'm sure everybody takes their mask off, they relax, right? You feel Mm -hmm. that you're at home. But in some cases, there's up to 10 people that are living in a one bedroom. You know, there's been cases that we know of where there's been up to 30 people oh in a three-bedroom. I mean, these are painful realities that people are living here, right here in San right. Francisco. So a lot of these um, things we've been talking about, you know, sparked the creation of the Latino Task Force in the spring. So can you describe how that came about and how you got the job of leading it? <laughs> I was voluntold. 
uh, as, as much as what I do. But, um, you know, uh, the Latino Task Force is a very, like, organically grown, um, call it an organization. It's a very loosely run one. Um, it is a collaborative collective, I think is the right way to phrase it. Um, I'm blessed to, to be from this neighborhood, and, and I never take that for, for granted. I feel very privileged that we have had, it's both beautiful and it's mm -hmm. terrible, right? Like the beauty of it is that we have so many leaders in our community that have stepped up to fight. But the, the bad side or the dark side or the painful side is that everything that we have achieved has had to have been fought for, has, has had to have been a battle. Um, and, you know, of course, the great side is it's created some tremendous leaders that are sophisticated in their approach of, you know, working with city governments, et cetera. But the downside is that we constantly have to be in these battles to try to gain some level of, of parity or equity. Um, so the Latino Task Force is comprised of the leadership is majority community folks that have been doing this work in some cases as, you know, early as the 60s, 70s. Uh, more recent, I, I think I'm one of the younger folks on the tail end. I've been in this, you know, seven, eight years now. Um, and we have, we're backed by 30 nonprofits citywide, and we're comprised of 13 different committees. Wow. So within the Latino Task Force, we have committees that focus on small business, they focus on health, workforce, uh, you know, economic, uh, economic vitality. So you have a bunch of different different working committees that meet constantly. So I have been fortunate and blessed to have led our mm -hmm. health committee, um, which leads both our Department of Public Health partnership, our University of California, San Francisco partnership, um, and our general kind of overall kind of health of the neighborhood. And I'm by no means a health expert, nor was I one before COVID. Um, I've really worked in the past on anti-gentrification housing policy and once was fortunate to be a legislative aide for Supervisor Kim. But health obviously has been the issue mm -hmm. of the day and something that I've been thrusted into. Uh, but I feel that has been, you know, one of the bigger unfortunate blessings uh, <laughs> yeah. in my life to, to be helping lead. Well, it's good you have a good outlook on it because it's a big job that you're not getting paid for, <laughs> like you said. Um, <laughs> so I know you've been frustrated by the lack of resources from City Hall for the work of the task force. Can you describe some examples where you think the city is coming up short in supporting your work? Yeah, I mean, you know, we did our first, our first partnership was back in April, um, where we partnered with the University of California, San Francisco, mm -hmm. UCSF. Shout out to Dr. Havlier, Dr. Marquez, Dr. Shamey, and Dion Jones on the UCSF side. Um, we partnered with them to do our first census tract study. At the time, we knew anecdotally that 80% of the people that were at San Francisco General Hospital were from the Latino community and from the Mission District. We also knew, we didn't really know the demographics at the time because it had not been released. Back then, the screen just showed mm -hmm. the count um, and how many had succumbed, right? So there was no demographics. And so ultimately, the city did put that up. But that first study we, in three short weeks and only four days of outreach, we, we were intending to reach out to 5,700 people in a census tract. We were able to bring out 4,200, a little north of that, um, to get tested for the first in-community testing of its kind. And of that, what we found was that despite Latinos only being 40% of the people that tested, and just, just to break it out, the, our, our uh, white brothers and sisters were 30% of mm -hmm. those that tested, and the rest were in the API category, et cetera. Of all the people that tested positive for COVID, 95% of them were from wow. the Latino community. 
five, five, the other 5% were from the API community. Six weeks in a shelter in place. There was not one individual from, from the white mm-hmm. community that tested positive. And, and so what we found in the exit surveys was 90% of those that tested positive did not have the privilege to work from home, meaning they're essential mm-hmm. workers. 88% of them made under $55,000 a year. And, and so that's what we found back in April. Okay? So clearly, we're telling the city, hey, we have a 9% infection rate in the Mission District. Clearly, there's disparities here. We need help. It wasn't until June that we got our first testing site uh, in the Mission District. And the frustrating part with that is it was in a partnership with the Department of Public Health. But the night before, me and Valerie Trulia Lewa, one of the leaders of the Latino Task Force, were at 6.30 at night uh, at Office Max <laughs> buying supplies because there was no supplies the next day for the launch of our testing site. We didn't have signs. We didn't have, we had to literally create everything. Uh, on a credit card, we had to buy uh, canopies and tables and chairs to ensure that we were able to set up the swappers and set up our volunteers. I mean, you're talking about a partnership that felt like it was in name only. Mm. Okay. We then proceed to that testing. It was beautiful to me. The thing that warmed my heart was that we got there. I got there at seven in the morning that day before our testing. And right when I got there, there was already a line wrapped around the corner of a lot of our monolingual Spanish speaking community members that were really interested in getting a test. Some of them because they were paranoid and they wanted to know their status. Others because their, their employers were requiring some kind of test for them to go back to work. And, and that was our first week of testing. And, you know, we, fortunately, the first two weeks with VPH did not go that well. In many cases, we didn't get results back until 14 days after the first day wow. we were tested. So I myself was tested June 9th, and I was not given my negative result for 14 That's days. That's pretty pointless. Um, incredibly pointless. It, it, was, it was pointless, and, and I think it just kind of speaks to, to the inability for the city to respond and react to a five-alarm mm-hmm. fire in a way that I think is adequate and appropriate, especially in a climate where we're talking so much about race and equity. Right. And it just feels like we're saying a lot of things and putting a lot of mission statements out, but the actions aren't mm-hmm. matching the words or the phrases. And so um, one of the big elements that has not really been steady has been the right to recover money. Um, that's the money that allows people to quarantine for two weeks if they don't have paid sick leave. And it ran out once. I understand that they have found a new donor. So that's good news. But there was several weeks Bring in between. It on. Yep. With, um, <laughs> with no money for that. And then it will only last, you know, several weeks and then going to have to go on the hunt again. So it seems like this should be just city provided rather than looking for philanthropists. 100%. And you know what? If I can even take a step back to our April study, because I think that the right to recover was actually born out of a program that we helped lead, uh, that we actually birthed in the community wellness team. So for us, it wasn't enough, and it's not enough, even today. It's not enough to just test people. It does me no good if I am testing, for example, say one of our day laborers who maybe is not documented and doesn't have sick pay and doesn't have state or the right to state or federal benefits. It does me no good to tell them, hey, you're asymptomatic, but you're positive, and you have mm-hmm. to stay home for two weeks but you don't have enough money to buy mm-hmm. groceries. You don't have a Costco card to stock up. You don't have a paycheck that is gonna protect you for two weeks. So we developed what we called our test to care model, our community wellness team model, 
which essentially is community workers that will call those that test positive daily. They will interact with them to see what their needs are, take them boxes of food so they don't have to leave their home. And we were able to raise private funds in some instances to be able to help people with their financial needs that they needed, pay a cable bill, pay your phone bill, whatever it was. But it does us no good to test people and put them in a position where they have to make a decision of either putting food on the table for their kids and risking it going out asymptomatic or staying home and risking their own financial health, right? Their financial mm -hmm. future. And so the right to recover was born out of that concept. And, and obviously it's an innovative idea, first in the state, nobody has done it. I think they haven't even replicated it up today, but it's something that we have to think through if we truly want to solve this problem. And we shouldn't have to depend on private philanthropy to, you know, hopefully if they're in a great mood that day, provide $2 million, <laughs> right? Yeah. It should be because it's beneficial to us as a city, especially if we want to unlock and open up, it should be incumbent on us to provide that out of our general dollars to ensure that people can shelter in place adequately. Right. And this is one of the rare examples where it would really benefit, you know, the entire city, even, you know, if everybody should want the person who gets sick to be quarantining for their own sake, as well as everybody else's so that the virus doesn't spread. So I'll tell you to two reasons. Yes. Number one, let's be good human beings right. and just morally right <laughs> feel like, hey, let's care for thy brother and sister. Right. Mm -hmm. But the second piece, which is actually an interesting one that the state has released is in Marin, you know, they're trying to get to their new color, which is the 50% open mm -hmm. phase, right? I forget what color it is. Well, the state has now designated a third tier to this unlocking of 50% opening, meaning that restaurants could have 50% capacity, et cetera. They've added a new tier, which is an equity measurement. So it doesn't matter if you, if your test cases are relatively for your whole city down per day, you know, hospital beds are, you know, free or whatever. If your equity in your marginalized communities, your low-income communities are not adequate, then you don't get to move into that next tier. Mm -hmm. So now programs like Right to Recover and the community wellness team model, which we're hoping will get funded so we can do this, will be essential for us to be able to unlock and businesses and life to go back to normal, you know, and businesses to be able to thrive again. Yeah. So it's it's a multifold, let's care about it and help get it funded kind of effort here. We'll be right back. I'm back with John Jacobo, head of the Latino Task Force. Do you think the pandemic is teaching us any lessons about inequity that will last, or is it just pointing out the disparities that are getting even worse? I, I always say that I really hope that we don't go back to normal. Because mm -hmm. um, normal that wasn't that good. <laughs> nor normal kind of sucked, right? But right. I think that COVID has really kind of ripped the veil off of inequity that was hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. um, I do this work often and I think I know it because I'm in it, but I will tell you that for me, it's even really opened my eyes to just how pervasive uh, systematic racism has uh, has, per has existed within society and created a lot of the, the structural norms that exist, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is such a big topic and I'm not gonna go super there, but even from the 30,000 foot view, the people that are migrating here are migrating because of the unfortunate power dynamics that have existed from the Western world inflicted on them, right? It's this, this take and not give it that has produced the conditions for people to migrate. And they mm -hmm. come here in search of a better life like many do, but in many ways are living in the margins 
uh, of what is one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's showing us that it, that inequities exist. And if we're going to be about social justice and put black lives matter signs on our windows, we have to double down on those values Mm -hmm. for the black indigenous and Latino communities of not just our city, but of our state country. And what are your hopes for the mission in say six months or a year? Where where would you like to see your neighborhood um, be? <laughs> Man, if I had a magic wand, <laughs> yeah, we can just open pops back up regularly <laughs> and just like you know be able to go into like Taqueria Vallarta and just hang out. That sounds that good. That would be my goal. It would be phenomenal. It would be, it would be like a perfect you know Thursday afternoon. Yeah, but no, but I, I think that in six months. I really would love to see infection rates on par with the city average, if not lower, right? Mm-hmm. Like realistically speaking, like right now we're hovering anywhere from six to 9% infection rates when the city's overall infection rate is about 2%. Mm. I would want to see our community that is, you know, in many ways helping keep the city running, you know, the restaurants that people are door dashing and staying comfortably at home from, <laughs> very yeah. likely the people cooking the food for you are from this community, right? right? I would love to see us at that 2%. I would love to to hear Dr. Anthony Fauci say that there is a safe and adequate vaccine that all of us can take. Mm-hmm. And I would love for the dissemination of a safely tested and approved vaccine to be focused on those most in the margins and those mm-hmm. that are essential workers. Yeah. That for me would be like, hey, hell, I know it's only been six months, but man, are we marching towards <laughs> me being able to be on a beach. Um, <laughs> That's my goal too. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I, I would hope that in six months we can get there. Cool. Well, you've survived my serious questions and now it's time for the famous lightning round. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Where in San Francisco do you go for your favorite burrito? Oh, man, I don't want to tell people because then there's going to be lines <laughs> out the door. I don't even know if I want to share that. <laughs> nah, um, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, if I'm going to get a burrito, um, it's probably going to be at Farolito, El Farolito on Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably my go-to spot. Nice. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? <sighs> Last Black Man in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, that's House is right down the street from mine. Oh, I walk cool. by every day and I'm like, oh, man, it's yeah. Um, thinking back to when bars were open about um, a decade ago, where's your favorite place in San Francisco to get a stiff drink? Damn, man. Everybody's going to find me. <laughs> Pops, bar, Pops Bar on 24th in York, uh, okay. neighborhood bar, and uh, is, is, one, is one that I would be at if it was open today. Cool. What was the last book you read? Oh, man. The last book I read, Unforgetting a Memoir of Family, Migration, Gangs, and Revolution in the Americas by our very own Roberto Lavato, a Salvadorian, San Franciscan. If you haven't read it, check it out. My parents migrated from El Salvador because of the war. And so that book has been, uh, has been a beautiful read. Wow. That was definitely the quickest answer um, to that question in the entire <laughs> history of this podcast. People are always like, um, oh, it was about this thing. Um, well, let me, you know, let me tell you why, though, because I've been out here preaching it like the gospel. Being like, yo, have you read this? <laughs> my buddy Luis that, uh, that works at, at, my buddy Julio that works at Meda, uh, literally just picked it up. He's like, bro, thank you for the recommendation. Oh, nice. like, I told you. I cool. told you. I'll put it on my list. What was thank your you. first concert? Damn, my first concert. Jesus. Probably something at Great America back in the day. I don't even remember what it would have been, but one of the <laughs> summer concerts. Yeah. I, I probably got nauseous because the music was too loud and had to leave. You know? Yeah. I was a kid. Well, the mission has changed a lot, obviously, in the last several years. What's your favorite and least favorite thing about the neighborhood? 
God, my favorite thing is the culture, the vibrancy, and that's everything from the people that walk the streets to the murals, to the food, to the sounds in the mm-hmm. background. I mean, it's to me, it's a magical place. Clearly, I have a bias, but um, I just think it is. My least, my least favorite is the inequities. I think that's what drives me and that's what pushes me. And not just my neighborhood, but I think neighborhoods in general. It's painful to know the lived realities that people have to exist through no fault of their own. Yeah. Who is your favorite politician in San Francisco? My favorite politician in, in San Francisco? I mean, man, there's no bias, but I worked for her and I worked on her mayoral campaign. It was former supervisor Jane Kim, okay. you know, a, a very close friend and, and somebody that I've always appreciated and looked up to the work ethic and the thought process that goes into her decision making. Solid, solid sister. <laughs> and I don't know if you'll answer this, but do you have a least favorite politician in San Francisco? Oh, man. Uh, no, I don't think I, you know what? I'll, I'll be honest here. Like, I, again, I, I feel like we forget our own bias. Like, people, like, especially in the progressive camp, right? They mm-hmm. will, they will say, oh, Scott Wiener this and David Chu that. And, will, and people will say these things about, about the other side, right? Which in some cases on some issues, absolutely. I feel you right there with you. But when you take a step out of where we are in, in context, when you go to Sacramento and you look at some of these policies and some of these other counties and other assembly members, you're like, damn, that's yeah, different. They're so liberal. And when yeah. you, right. And when you leave out of this particular state and go into other states, you're like, good Lord, like, <laughs> I'm going back to California on the first flight. So, you know, I, I think I think everybody really does come to this work with a belief that their views and what they're pushing for will better San Francisco. I don't agree with a lot of what is done uh, on the other side of my, call it political aisle, but Mm -hmm. I think that everybody, I respect people's work ethics. Yeah. What do you look forward to most about the COVID-19 pandemic ending? What is something you're not allowed to do now that you really want to do? I mean, honestly, I haven't seen my grandmother in months, um, have not been able to visit her. You know, we've been able to do like a ride by on the bike. She's still yeah. here in the Mission District. Wow. She was the first one, in fact, to come to the Mission District mm-hmm. and still one of the last ones left. Um, I think that would be that would be really cool. And just, you know, the I really do miss the old social norms like the, yeah. you know, the after work, you know, getting up with people and being able to just meet and talk in person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is so different. And I, I honestly am starting to forget what that felt like. So, yeah, those are two things. Last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Something I always make sure to squeeze into my busy day outside of sleep. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I mean, I definitely like to make sure I catch up on, you know, I mean, I don't know. I like to watch a little bit of TV, you know, kind of unwind towards the end of the day. So I I have to like, even though it's super dorky, but it'll still be like CNN or whatever's going on. (laughs) But like, you know, after, after everything we do throughout the day, I definitely want to make sure I do that. Even for 15, 20 minutes, even if it's just background noise, it was something that growing up, we always had kind of TV in the background. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like a very soothing thing to me. And that's kind of one of the things. I I don't think the news is very soothing these days. (laughs) I don't know, man. You know, it's, Kind of like it feels it sometimes feels like uh like a pro wrestling series, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. without without the pro wrestling, but it's just very kind of like bizarre. It is. Well, yeah. thank you for taking time out of your busy day to talk to me. It was fun to talk to you. It was super fun to talk to you, Heather. I appreciate you. Thank you to John Jacobo for joining me today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. <laughs>